0: Go ahead and take the speed up your number one
1: now, runway 27 land Green Dot.
0: Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello, and welcome back to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast coming to you from EAA's headquarters here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I'm Hal Bryan, I'm senior editor at EA for content and digital publications. With me on my
2: left is. I'm Chris Henry, the EA Museum Programs Representative.
0: And we have a guy playing a dual role today, sitting across from us. He's a host. He's a guest. He's a floor wax. He's a dessert topping. We don't know what.
3: Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director.
0: Excellent. And uh, who have you brought with you today, Tom?
3: So uh, we have the, um, uh, some other folks from the Government Advocacy Team uh, who are based here in Oshkosh. Um, we have my boss, Sean Elliott. He's the Vice President of Advocacy and Safety. Um, he also uh, has a dual role running our flight department here at EAA. So all of the air tours, uh, the B-17 program, the Ford Trimotor program, air operations during AirVenture, and a whole bunch of other stuff uh, fall under Sean's purview. And then my colleague, Mac Dixon, uh, who is uh, the Senior Government Advocacy Specialist, and uh, we work together on a lot of regulatory policy issues, um, member service issues. Um, stuff, and uh, just all uh, pretty much anything that we're uh, needed to do.
0: All right. I understand we're going to be hearing from Mac just a little bit later, but uh, first, Sean, welcome. Hey, great to be here. That's well, really good to, good to have you. You know, Sean, you're one of those guys, all the things that you get to fly, uh, of course, our B-17... Uh, the Spirit of St. Louis replica, which I, I have flown with you. That's how we first met. Um, and then uh, and then some other things. I don't know if we can talk about the other thing yet or not that you're working on. Can we mention
1: that? Oh, sure. Why not? Uh, June 2nd, I'm heading out to Wichita weather permitting. Uh, start start uh, training in the B-29 dock as one of the first group of pilots uh, getting transitioned to fly that airplane. So I like to say the uh, the years of slogging it out in the B-17 paid off. I landed that <laughs> B-29 job. That's uh,
0: on behalf of everybody listening, I, I wish I could hate you, but uh, <laughs> you're, really, you're just too
1: nice a guy. <laughs> Well, you know, the, all the flying that we do here is very, very special for our members. It's a great engagement uh, for, for across the country, and it really relates and, and crosses over nicely into all the advocacy work that we do. You know, Tom and Mac, and I mean, this is two-thirds of the advocacy team right here uh, with, with, uh, with the show today. We do an awful lot on both sides of the house in the sense that we operate and we walk the walk as well as work the, the issues that are important to our members, and it's a, it's a great uh, full-circle department. Excellent.
0: Well, maybe uh, you two guys, Sean and Tom, just sort of lay it out for us. If uh, if I'm an EA member and I'm listening to this, um, I have a general sense of what advocacy is, but can you can you give me a, a, a broader definition, either one of
1: you? Yeah, l- let me start and then Tom tag in with me, okay? Um, You know, advocacy is a lot of different things to many people, but to the EAA community, it's about preserving the freedoms and ensuring uh, the future of the movement of what was established in 1953 as experimental and experimental amateur built, and and most importantly, um, representing our members and and carrying their important um, issues forward and making a difference uh, for the future of general aviation. And that's what we do. Uh, We're very immersed. Tom you want to add to that?
3: Yeah, um I, I think first I can uh, just start by saying that um that as as you alluded to, we're a small shop here. Um it's uh Sean Mack, myself and Jane Smith here in Oshkosh. Um uh, we do have a, a summer intern starting next week uh, that we're really looking forward to, but um uh and, and then in Washington we do have a full-time um Washington staffer, uh Doug McNair who's uh, been in this business for a very long time. Uh and uh he primarily handles our congressional work, um, the, the stuff that we do on Capitol Hill, but uh, we all um, do a lot of, um, of policy work for the department. Um, I actually just uh, came back from, uh, from Washington, D.C. for uh, some advocacy work and some, uh, some safety committees that we participate on, uh, so we're, we're very active doing that. Um, I just say as far as our general approach to advocacy and you know, us being a, a small shop and, and doing uh, all of the uh, the work that we can do, we very heavily rely on subject matter experts in the community. We rely on our volunteer groups, uh, for example, the Home Build Aircraft Council, our Board of Directors Safety Committee, which um, Charlie Precourt from a prior episode is the chairman of. Uh, the Medical Advisory Council, the Legal Advisory Council, those are a spec- specific groups of uh, of people that have a lot of subject matter experience in those fields. Um, and that is really what enables us uh, to speak with the kind of authority that we have, because we're all airplane people here. Um, Sean, Mack, myself, Doug, we're all pilots. Um, but we, um, we we definitely need, um, from time to time, that that extra little bit of, uh, of experience. And that's something that I think is really unique to EAA because we are a volunteer driven organization. People want to come help us. And, uh, and that definitely is uh, one of the things that, that allows us to be so successful.
2: So, you know, as a member, as an individual member wanting to call in, how do you help people one on one? Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, most of what I do is uh, related to uh, medical policy, so uh, medical certification. Um, I uh, started off in this job about five years ago and uh, have over time um, developed a, a pretty good working knowledge of the uh, of the medical certification system. So, if you called me and said, you know, I just had uh, you know an operation, you know, how does this um, pertain to my medical certificate? Um, or I've just been diagnosed with X condition, something like that, um, we can uh, help people through. And and oftentimes it it, it does wind up being, it is a process. There is documentation that definitely needs to be done. Um, But at the end of the day, it's usually not insurmountable. And uh, I'm, I'm very proud of the work that we've done to be able to keep people in the air there's other stuff of course that we do as well aircraft certification um, airports policy max heavily into that um, just a, a whole host of, um, of, of issues dealing with either the federal government local government um, that kind of thing now Tom touching back on the
0: uh, on your experience in particular with, with the aeromedical things um, uh, is you know I used to sit a lot closer to your desk and we used to hear you on the phone a lot and, uh, and it, it seemed like two days into the job, you were over there sort of rattling off all these complicated medical conditions and, and you know, neurothrombosis, which I think is a thing I just made up, uh, <laughs> all sorts of stuff like this. And then it would get to a point where in almost every conversation, um, I'll say it was every conversation because that's funnier that way, uh, at some point you would have to say, no, I'm not actually a doctor right? because <laughs> you, were, you were so well-informed on this stuff and so helpful to everybody. Um, if uh, if we did the sort of thing at work, I was going to make a drinking game where. Uh Take a sip of something every time you said that. But that's not our style, luckily. Um, But then what really got me was uh, after a while you started to specialize. Like, well, I'm not actually a cardiologist. I'm not actually a neurosurgeon. But uh, anyway, we gave you a hard time about that. But uh, it, it
1: really does speak to the fact that you did your homework, you know your stuff. So, Hal, that's an excellent point. What you just conveyed and what Tom does every day for all of our members who call in with these issues is reflective of the expertise that we have, not only on staff, but, Tom, is fully supported by various groups of volunteers, including, as Tom mentioned, in Aeromedical Medical Council, who are wonderful experts. And that's what enables EAA to be so effective. We are surrounded by a community of people that really know their stuff, and it reflects in Tom's interaction and his ability to, to, to work with the members and share and reflect that expertise and, in some cases, take it back to those folks to get the questions answered that he may not have, although, as you pointed out, most of the time he does. He's very, very good at his job. Uh, But that's the wonder of EAA. We've got great, great people in our community, and they are ready and willing to help all of the members with their knowledge and expertise. Absolutely.
2: I have to say, you know, being a friend with Tom out of work, I mean, I used to see you take it personal of trying to help get somebody back in the air who was having struggles, Um, and I would see you sort of take on that struggle, trying to make sure that you can get this person safely back in the air flying. I mean, you you definitely took it to heart, and uh, I think that's one of the, the things that really makes this place special is you know, we all want to see, we all want to help and want to see somebody uh, achieve what they're looking for.
3: Well, absolutely. And, I mean, as I said before, we are, um, uh, you know, we, we're, we're immersed in this, in this regulatory policy, policy wonky kind of business every day. Uh, but we're also all active pilots. Um, and, um, you know, we, we really do, we're, we're part of this community. And uh, we're, we're um, we want to see it uh, for selfish reasons, we want to see it uh, continue to survive and thrive. Um, and I think, um, I think that passion informs a lot of what we do. And, uh, and and we really do want to carry that forward. Well,
0: continuing on the medical theme just a little bit, uh, uh, Sean, maybe you can uh, give us an
1: overall update where where we are with basic med these days. Absolutely, Hal. Um, basic med has rolled out. May first uh, began the the realm of basic med, and you know we are seeing some significant um, achievements in the sense that now we're over five thousand folks that have pulled the uh, the form down and started going down the process of certifying under basic med, that's a great number. I mean, in less than a month, uh, we have eclipsed uh, other um, efforts, you know, as far as uh, things like Sport Pilot and so forth, as far as the number of active participants, and that's wonderful. It's not without its challenges. Um, certainly the the final rule, as uh, enacted by the law from Congress, was not exactly what we had hoped for, but it uh, it's a great step forward. And we are seeing uh, certainly a lot of success around that as far as people going out, uh, e- even locally I'm amazed at the pe- number of people that have called me and said, "Yeah, I went off to my, my local uh, doctor to get my annual physical and shared the form with them uh, prior and went, went to the, the physical and boom, I now have a basic med sign certificate uh, so that that's that's a wonderful start. Uh, we've got more work to do though there there's opportunities for improvement. There are things that the, even the FA has said once we get out of the gate. Uh, with the the rule written as the law dictated, uh, we can then go back to work uh, in w- over time uh, to to correct some of the administrative things that are maybe not as efficient as they could be, and continue to improve. Uh, and we're going to be obviously continuing to work with the FAA to see that happen.
0: Now, one of the things that had uh, had really impressed me was uh, there was somebody posting on uh, EAA forums, and there's a, an active discussion thread there, and it's uh, it's sort of a, a spectrum of experiences so far. Uh, several people are really excited about it, it's been really easy, you've got a couple of people who are who are saying, oh, it doesn't go far enough, it's kind of the typical uh, gamut of discussion. But there's one guy in particular who's, uh, I've forgotten where it was now, maybe somewhere in Minnesota, sort of gave his location and said, I went to a couple of doctors here and uh, you know they're not educated around it. They're not really ready for it. And uh, uh, someone from your team—I think it was Tom—had uh, actually jumped on the forum and said, "Here's the name and number of a doctor uh, in your area who is uh, up and running and doing this." So, is that something that we can help people with if they're trying to do basic med and uh, we haven't, uh, and they're having trouble with their local physician?
3: As much as we can, um, and I'll have to uh, give Matt credit for that. He was the one who was able to uh, to find that um, that that office. Um, obviously, there's. Um, Somewhere in the neighborhood of a million doctors in the country um, And if uh, all we were doing was, uh, was was on the phone With them telling them about how great basic med okay. was We wouldn't really get much else done But uh Yes, uh, we, we can. We can certainly give general advice to uh, to members trying to track down um, somebody who um, who can help them out. Uh, one thing that we have found is uh, has been very um, effective so far. Has been uh, occupational health clinics, basically the people who do DOT physicals and uh, and other kinds of physicals that people need for recreational activities as well as as work uh, related things. Um, those. In the absence of anything else, and a lot of people are having are having no problem with their with their personal doctors, but in the absence of that, um, those kinds of clinics seem to be uh, good so far. We're planning to do um, hopefully a, a full show on kind of the, the ins and outs of basic sure. med um, in uh, in in a in a little while, you know, as, as we go down this process. So we can certainly talk about more specifics
1: then. Yeah, you know, Tom, it is it's, it's good to point out though one of the things uh, that we've already discovered that was actually an unintended outcome if you will, um, is rather than just finding problems with various docs concerned about liability, um, we've actually found more issues in the rural areas that don't have access to close-by state-licensed physicians. And that is what the rule requires, a state-licensed doctor, uh, not a doctor's assistant, uh, not a nurse practitioner. In a lot of rural communities, that's all they have access to in many cases. So that's a little issue that none of us really saw coming that uh, we'll, we'll continue to seek solutions as we move forward. That's interesting.
3: Yeah, it was actually something that, that um – that. Uh, in the original uh, legislation, I know came up, but it was um, it was not something we were able to do on the initial run. And yeah, in, in rural areas, um, there uh, the, there is a, there is an issue with lack of availability of doctors. Although uh, you, you have the same problem with AMEs out there too. So sure.
2: I mean, what you guys are doing with the medical reform is, is amazing. With what I, I shouldn't say reform, but what you're you're doing with this is amazing. It's getting more pilots in the air. A lot of times, people who thought maybe they couldn't fly any longer. Uh, or had a disqualifying issue or able to fly. Uh, And then other people who, it's just making it easier for others to to gain access to fly. But another avenue that uh, you guys are helping with is getting aircraft better equipped um, and easier equipped using things like the stc program could could one of you touch on the stcs that we work on
1: yeah actually chris let me quick before we close off on the basic med is I, it is important to to point out very clearly that w- this was very much a partnership with aopa and the two organizations together are what made that happen um i rem- i was there when we announced the initial petition in 2011 um, and you know it, it's been a long road to hoe and it wouldn't have happened without you know the the industry as a whole and particularly aop and ea partnering on this uh, to, to get to where we're at today and it's not perfect, but uh, we are where we're at, which is significant. Um, SCC work, there's no question that we are breaking some serious new grounds in the way of uh, affordable, low risk safety enhancing equipment being brought into the cockpit of certified airplanes. And that you know that's significant. Um, when you look at the prior costs, of uh, many basic pieces of equipment that can significantly enhance pilot situational awareness and overall safety in the cockpit um, in both VFR and IFR conditions. Um, it was expensive, it was seriously expensive and continues to be so in many cases. Um, with our STC, we're, we're breaking that glass, we're, we're making a difference and bringing much lower cost and price point equipment that does the same things as the previous, what would have cost fifteen dollars or $20,000, uh, we're bringing out uh, to our membership in the general aviation community for significantly lower dollar amounts. Tom, you want to talk a little bit more about the details on that? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Um, So this effort uh, really kind of began in earnest. It actually actually wasn't really that long ago in the grand scheme of things, really only uh, about two years ago or so, um, that we saw an opportunity to be able to take some of these very mature technologies and these very mature products that we're seeing in the amateur-built community and bring those into the cockpits of type-certificated aircraft. Uh, So we... um, uh, you know, we kind of looked around, and f- tried to figure out how best to, to do this, and um, ultimately, what we decided to do was to actually step forward as an STC applicant ourselves, uh, which is uh, which was a new experience for um, pretty much all of us. EAA does hold the auto fuel STC that was developed back in the nineteen uh, eighties that allows certain aircraft to fly with automotive gasoline, but um, this was something that uh, was, was quite a different project, and and. Um, our initial, pro, our initial um, go at this was to work with Dynon Avionics in Seattle on their D10A um, flight information screen as a replacement for your primary attitude indicator. And uh, we worked on the certification project with our certification office in Chicago, with the small airplane director in Kansas City, and with policy staff in Washington um, to um, to go through the approvals process, develop the STC. Uh, I got to flight test it um, with an FAA uh, test pilot, a, a former Air Force test pilot. We jumped into a into a experimental category 172 experimental R&D 172, and we went up and did some uh, did some maneuvers with the uh, with the. Uh, d- device installed. that was a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, and then at Sun and Fun last year we announced that we actually had the STC and we began selling it at, at Air Ventures. So um, that was a incredibly rewarding process. Um, I, I think we really, as Sean said, we broke a lot of new ground as far as changing the paradigm, uh, at the FAA to be able to come up with approvals for these things that are based on risk. You've got a small airplane with a well-proven product that has um, redundancies and backups, and uh, uh, and and. and increases the total safety of the cockpit. And uh, we were able to now have the FAA really embracing this idea of risk-based approvals. And we're now applying that to a new project we're working on with Uh, TrueTrack. TrueTrack Autopilots, um, TrueTrack... Uh, yeah, the, the, uh, they make autopilots, and uh, they're uh, the, the, we're working with the TrueTrack Vision system, which is um, an older autopilot um, that they that they've had very well proven, uh, and we are aiming to have the uh, STC issued by Air venture, um, which will be another big breakthrough.
1: You know what, what we've done with this is simply take what's well known in the experimental community as far as equipment that previously was low cost and available to all home builders and work with the FAA to find a path forward to enable this for the certified world. I think it's important to point out too for our listeners, there's two distinct paths of this that we've had to dive into and really work hard to create this reform that Tom described. And that's the manufacturing path. When you manufacture a, they call it an article, okay? A a box, a device like the D10A. The FAA has very specific requirements around the manufacturing side. And we've made significant strides in improving that and are continuing to do so. There's also the design approval side. That's the second half of it. And we're also making a major difference in how the FAA approaches that for these low-risk safety-enhancing items. And that's huge. It's something that's just not been accomplished prior that we're blazing this trail forward.
0: Well, and this is one of those things that this process has fascinated me because, uh, to be frank, it's the kind of thing where, you would look at, at this equipment and, and, just, and just roll your eyes and, and really struggle with sort of understanding the thinking behind kind of a bureaucratic absolute that says you can put it in this airplane, but not in that airplane and it it uh, to a layperson in particular i think out there you say well look at this cool uh, look at this cool gauge i want to put it out on my airplane well you can't because your airplane's in the wrong category that really seems arbitrary that's uh you know it, it the deeper we get into it we we understand more of the nuances of approvals and things like this but to somebody new to aviation you scratch your head it makes no sense whatsoever so for us to be able to go and find a path to say Hey, look! We can make this make more sense, and we can find a, a, a rational solution that says uh, that says you know what? Yes, it does work great in this airplane, and there's no reason now that you can't put it in that airplane over there as well.
1: Yeah, what well, you just described how really boiled down to up until the last year and a half, it was a one size fits all approach. If you were manufacturing an article for a Part 25 airliner or a general aviation you know light aircraft it was the same requirements it was the same approach and that's where it was really not working yeah and that's where we've made a difference absolutely yeah.
3: uh, one more uh, thing i just wanted to add before uh, before we get off um of this um of this point is this is a really good um example of EAA working collaboratively with the FAA um to achieve something that we all want uh, i mean we're not the FAA is not this like well, sometimes they are this monolithic, you know, intransigent bureaucracy. They have, you know, they have more of an aviation culture. They have more of a pilot culture than we oftentimes give them credit for. And they also, you know, aren't blind. They see the great things that we're doing in experimental and they want to find a way to do this. So what we did was we worked with them and we found a way to allow them to say yes to something like this, and that's the kind of approach that we always try to take in advocacy. Uh, we're a, as we said, we're a small shop. Um, we don't have the resources or really the, uh, the the time or energy to just go beating down the door of 800 Independence Avenue and <laughs> say, "Listen to me, darn it!" Um, that also doesn't work very well. So we have to work. Um, we, we have to work with the agency to accomplish our shared goals. And you know, it's really kind of gotten to the point now that when the FAA wants to hear something about Wants, wants our opinion on um, on home built on home built aircraft or one of the other you know areas that we really focus on. They'll flat out just pick up the phone and ask us, "What's your opinion on this?" I mean, that's a lot of power to be able to have, um, and it's because of this collaborative approach and, the, and these relationships that we've built over the years. And that really goes all the way back to when Paul Poberezny went to Washington in the 1950s and set up the uh, the experimental amateur built category. Um, Okay, so and um, um, moving off of STCs, I'm, I'm um, going to uh, introduce my colleague here, Mac, uh, to talk a little bit about hangar use policy. Um, this was this is an issue that we've been working on uh, at least as long as I've been at EAA, um, involving um, what you can and can't do with your hangar. Um, you know what what you can keep in your hangar, if you can build in your hangar, um, that kind of thing. And it's it's um, it's blown up. Um, more than once at, at many different airports, and, and Mac's been uh, working really hard on um, on changing that. So, Mac, you want to uh, give us a few minutes on that? Sure, yeah. So,
4: uh, Tom, as you alluded to uh, earlier, this has been going on for at least the past couple of years. Uh, the FAA sought to clarify their policy on non-aeronautical use of airport hangars. So a little background there. The FAA governs... The use of airport facilities like hangars uh, for airports that receive federal grant money. So, bottom line is the airport is receiving taxpayer funds. That means that the FAA says we're going to come in and, and make sure that the airport is being used for aviation activity. It makes sense. The taxpayer money is going towards that activity, so we want to make sure it's being used for that activity. So, basically, uh, the FAA had a policy on on aeronautical use of airport hangars and non aeronautical use of airport hangars, and and uh, a few complaints and and decisions by the FAA that came about a few years ago led to a clarification of that policy, and eventually we got the final policy last year, and and I th- I think it's it was a big win for our community um, as as far as. The win for us goes, it, it allows construction of amateur-built aircraft from beginning to end, uh, and it defines that activity as an aeronautical activity uh, for federal grant assurance purposes. So you can go in, you can rent or buy a hangar and build your airplane, and that is allowed by the FAA and considered an aeronautical activity per, per their grant assurances. So uh, that was a huge win. There were some, some other things in there. It clarified that EAA chapters are, in fact, a nonprofit organization that can be, uh, that can be given less than fair market value rent. Uh, it also said that you can put some non-incidental or you can put some incidental items in, in, into your hangar, uh, you know, things that don't, if, you, if, if it doesn't take up space that otherwise an airplane could be fit there. Then you can put it in your hangar per the per the policy. So you can tuck your motorcycle in the corner or something like that. If uh, if uh, if it is, I th- I think it's it's meant for you know something like small something like a toolbox, uh, chairs, uh, a refrigerator, you know things like that. If things if, that
3: contribute to the social environment of the
4: hangar, which exactly. is obviously very important
3: yeah. for EA members. Exactly. Sure.
4: Yeah. and I, I think it's important to also get across, you know. Airports are, are the epicenters of, of of GA activity. That that that's kind of obvious, and and but, but to airport managers and to some airport sponsors, cities and counties, I don't think they view it that way. So it's important for us as as EAA and, and for us as a community to get that across and, and make sure that that access to GA airports and and GA activity is is protected. So uh, if if anybody is having issues or or uh, uh, the, their their city or county hasn't Quite gotten on board with the new FA policy yet? Please don't hesitate to contact us.
0: And I was just going to ask: uh, Is this uh, our efforts in this area? Is this something that's come in response to questions or concerns from members? We've heard from people
4: that have that have uh, struggled with this. Yes, there there are a few, and uh, we've we've dealt with uh, an issue in, in Ogden, Utah, recently. Uh, we've dealt uh, with issues uh, all over the country, and and it's as we see with 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 many other issues. Some airports are uh, are very progressive, I guess, for for, lack of a better term, uh, towards GA activity, and and some aren't, and it takes some convincing, but uh, we've been able to do that, I think. Yeah,
3: and one thing I guess I'd um, I'd add to the uh, to the the home building aspect of it, and not not just home building, but restoring um, aircraft, um, that kind of thing, um, being done on the airport grounds. That had, of course, all taken place pretty much since there have been airports, but the FAA had never actually defined that as a protected aeronautical use. So your airport, up until recently had full rights to come in there and shut you down. Um, and now they don't. Now, that's a, now that is, that is uh, within certain restrictions which, um, you know, are, are uh, workable. You know, we can work with uh, airport sponsors on that. Um, it, it is now a protected activity.
1: Right. And to the point I made earlier in our discussion, um, and the full circle aspects of operating aircraft, walking the walk, talking the talk, doing the advocacy work that we do, we'll actually be out at Ogden with our B-17 doing a tour stop, and I'm going to be there with the airplane. Uh, I fully plan to sit down and meet with the chapter there, uh, meet with some of the, the airport management folks that we worked with in, in creating and uh, developing their policy based on the new national policy, um, and making sure that it's being implemented correctly and that our members um, are taking full advantage of what this means to the home-built movement. And the allowance of these aeronautical activities, and you know, most people, Sean, don't have the luxury of bringing a bomber (laughs) with them
0: uh, to sort of to a table. We're saying, "Hey, remember the stuff we agreed to? We're still on board, right?" (laughs) You've got got a B seventeen behind you. You know,
1: that's the beauty of the the EAA tour programs, uh, the air tour programs, and and flight experiences. It it makes not only an impact for our members, um, our our folks that come out to experience flight, um, as well as our, our volunteers, our hundreds and hundreds of volunteers across. The country, it also is a tremendous PR tool for the local GA airports, and this is a great example. Um, you know, the airplane will be there; will be will be there in you know full shining colors with it, um, and be able to to really engage with our chapters, our members, and the folks that are dealing with this this hangar use um, policy that's come out.
2: Excellent. So, something that I've I've of course been following closely because of my uh, past here is what's going on with ATC privatization. Um, and I know that EA has, has been involved in, you know, in some of it. Can you guys touch a little bit on, on where it is and what your thoughts are on it? Absolutely, Chris. Um, ATC
1: privatization is one of our biggest concerns as an organization right now. Um, there is some traction around basically spinning off the entire element of air traffic control out of the FAA, out of the federal government, and put it into a private ent- entity that is overseen by a private board of directors. Um, there are a whole lot of things to this that just do not spell good outcome from a general aviation standpoint. User fees, of course, are at the top of our list, but that's by, by any means, is not the only concern we have. Um, and user fees, when you have a, a system like air traffic control, can crop up at any time down the road, no matter what protections you think are put into place. You know, Over a couple of years, that can change with a stroke of a pen. But in addition to the concern about user fees, our biggest concern is not having congressional oversight. Congress is there to represent the people, the public, and that's what creates fairness and and you know an overarching approach that that works for everybody, not just the most powerful group that happens to be influencing the outcome.
2: Tom, you were going to say something.
3: Yeah. Um, I, I guess just to add, to add on uh, what Sean said, um, yeah, there are um, there are certainly uh, areas. That there's certainly some deserved debate over what role the uh, the federal government should play, but um, in, in in all aspects of public life, of course, and, and managing the the uh, the, infra- the country's infrastructure. But this is one area uh, where we we do not see. Um, Good things happening from uh, from privatization, and you know, you, you may view this as a big airplane issue. You may view this as, well, I don't use ATC, so why do I care? Um, well, you ha- you fly out of an airport, and your airport may have, for example, published instrument approaches, um, and and other uh, you know and, and users that really depend on that system flying in and out, and. Um, you know, if uh, if that whole thing starts to become prioritized in certain ways, or funded in certain ways, or really, you know, disrupted in ways that favor one group over the other, that whole the whole house of cards, to pardon to use a political pun there, falls apart. <laughs> uh, you know, you you, um, you know, when 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 the big tenants leave. The burden's going to be increasingly on the little tenants at the airport and and that kind of thing. So, it is um, it is something that will have tentacles that will spread through all of general aviation. It's not just the big
1: boys. So, our our chairman Jack Pelton and myself have constantly fielded questions about, well, what would be acceptable? What, you know, how could this work? And we are certainly, as an organization, not opposed to. Um, outsourcing air traffic and coming up with efficiencies there, but it's critical to maintain oversight of the, of the national airspace system and air traffic control at Congress. That, that's paramount for any system if it's going to work into the future, and preserve what frankly is the best air traffic control and national airspace system in the world. Go fly in Europe sometime if you think I'm lying. <laughs> it's a vastly different
0: experience. And bring yeah. your wallet okay. <laughs> yeah. every time you touch down. Yeah. You're you're shelling out some some cash. People yeah. look at
1: Nav Canada and say, "Well, what about that?" It's a apples to oranges comparison. The quantity of traffic, the volume of of, of operations in Canada is tremendously different than the United States, and you can't compare it,
0: especially compared to the the physical size of the airspace and the number of airplanes per. You know, thousands of square kilometers. Um, exactly. <laughs> you know, the privatization thing. One last quick thought on this, and I think you you actually hit it uh, already, Sean. Though it's it, it's interesting to me because our advocacy efforts, uh, you know, are always about about uh, about freedom and about uh, efficiency and preserving that freedom and. You know, some people, and maybe we just want to reinforce this a little bit. Some people may look at this issue on the surface and say, "Well, privatizing something, uh, you know, less less bureaucracy, less fewer rules, things like that." That maybe that uh, maybe that sounds like a, a good thing. And you guys have, have talked about why it's not. But maybe just drive that point home
1: one last little bit sure you know we are all about reducing regulatory requirements and rules but privatizing ETC is not about that it's about spinning off a piece of the federal government that belongs and with a national oversight of Congress Um, I can't emphasize that enough right now we are working this issue every day on the hill we are, Jack Pelton is heavily immersed in this as our chairman. Doug McNair, our Washington representative, is every day beating this, the street on, on the Capitol Hill. Um, Joe Brown, one of our, our board members, just testified before Congress, stressing the, the, the urgency of why this is, is a critical issue uh, for the, the future of general aviation. Um, there are better ways to reduce regulation, much better ways, without threatening the overall fairness and, and equity of the national airspace system to all users. Very
0: good. All right. Well, thank you very much, Sean. Thanks uh, again for taking some time to join us here today. Thanks also to uh, to Mac for uh, for sitting in. It's great to have uh, you guys as guests. Tom, thank you for playing double duty as host and guest. Uh, thanks for uh, Chris for always uh, just. Uh, hanging in there and, and helping us uh, keep this thing rolling. That's what I do. Exactly. It is what you do. And uh, shout-out quick to Rob Molash, who's going to edit this together and make it sound coherent. And with that, producer Sarah is waving her arms and uh, telling me to stop talking for once. So we're going to wrap this up. But thanks to all who listen. Please keep the feedback and the reviews coming. And we'll look forward to talking to you the next time you're cleared to land on the Green Dot.